Talking Cool Books, episode 43, A Little Wiser. When I was a kid and rode the bus to school, my innate love of story was nourished by friends and neighbors who would tell me all sorts of jokes and tall tales and who listened as I spun out my nascent philosophy. Then there was a year when our school was under renovation, and so the bus rides became a good deal longer. We even took the highway, part of the route there, to the school building we had to attend during the construction. We augmented our normal pastimes with a car spotting game, where whoever saw a car first could call it, and the car was theirs. My impression is that Pullman must have had a similar fascination at some point with the aesthetic qualities of cars and their names, since he's used them not only for this chapter's title, the Rolls-Royce, but for another of his books, The White Mercedes, which was later reissued with the title The Butterfly Tattoo. And that's the version I just read recently for the very first time. There's some very interesting stuff in there about original sin as discussed by characters whose perspectives on it uh, make their views a bit questionable, much as they seem to line up with what Pullman seems to be putting forward in his other works. But that'd be a story for another time. This chapter opens with a different sort of game, centering on a different sort of vehicle, a boat. And the boat, of course, gave him the title of his latest book, La Belle Sauvage. The narrative follows Lyra by herself for the first time in Shitagatsi, as he, she wonders about its eternal, calm summer weather. She goes outside and finds three boys and a girl in a paddle boat race. And it's a kind of play that would be familiar to her, who once thought of stealing the Costa's boat. And the play takes hold of them, whereas for her, that plan to steal the boat was derailed by the arrival of the gobblers in Oxford. The kids crash, they're tipping over and splashing about, has the effect of the games in Bolvanger, to help them feel as if the fear of the night before never happened. It makes sense that they're a little younger than most of the other kids, and so that when Lyra joins them, she never finds it hard to talk to other children. She can't be that much older than them. The little silver fish that Pan becomes here is a beautiful image for her intelligence. And even when he's frog-shaped, poor Pan, the narrator commiserates, he mirrors her own amphibiousness between childhood and maturity, just as she sits in the shallows between the sea and the dry land. Pan will be spending a lot of time in her shirt pocket this chapter. The kids' questions, all rapid-fire, don't really get an answer, but they don't seem to mind because they're more interested in answering hers. They impart sage advice about cat superstitions, half in awe, half disbelieving that they really saw that big pard, Pan's leopard form. She puts them off again, dismissing it as a dream and how things look different in the moonlight, which is certainly fair. And she learns more of what they have to tell her. They are, indeed, specter orphans. At least one of them is. 
and yet can still serio-comically reach out and pretend to grab what they can't see and say, I got one now. This reciprocity of ignorance on the part of the children inspectors is actually what protects them, according to their theory. And they have two stories about where the specters come from, just as Joachim Lorenz told the witches. They're either because of the guild, or they come as a punishment from God. Colorfully, the latter supposition is attributed to a granny, and laughed off with the ultimate ad hominem, she got a beard, your granny. She's a goat, all right? <laughs> and perhaps her demon is, if only it were visible. The preferred theory, perhaps popularized by the guild itself, or else the sort of anonymous gossip that gave rise to tales of gobblers back in Lyra's world. It runs that these knowers of philosophy, alchemy, all kinds of things, and another kid interjects here, the specters come from the stars. One representative philosopher, anyway, was making lead into gold by cutting and cutting it. And he cut it and cut it smaller and smaller till he came to the smallest piece he could get. There ain't nothing smaller than that. So small you couldn't see it even. But he cut that too. And inside the smallest little bit there was all the specters packed in, twisted over and folded up so tight it took up no space at all. But once he cut it, bam, he whooshed out and they've been here ever since. That's what my papa said. As Lyra presses on the here and now of the tower, they protest that the guild men ran away, that it's haunted, hence the cat. But they're inconsistent, saying next that the guild aren't afraid of the tower, that they're greedy and make the poor people do all the work, which has the ring of a received opinion. We'll see another more personal example of this naive political sentiment rise up in Will's memory later in this chapter. And once more Lyra presses, is there no one in the tower? And then she knew liars, and they were lying. That rule of reciprocity should apply here too, but there's a disconcerting twist. It's her skill not her ignorance when it comes to lying, that helps her see through their lies, their attempts. So it might be policy rather than ignorance on the part of the specters not to attack the children before they come of age. But Lyra also puts this together with what she saw the night before, with Paolo also mentioning his brother Tullio before Angelica had hushed him, she doesn't tell the kids about this, of course, and she actually doesn't tell Will either because he's still asleep. She leaves him a note as he's got the cat curled up at the foot of the bed, and she heads for her appointment with Dr. Malone. The way she took led her through the little square they'd come to the night before, but it was empty now, and the sunlight dusted the front of the ancient tower and showed up the blurred carvings beside the doorway human-like figures with folded wings, their features eroded by centuries of weather, but somehow in their stillness expressing power and compassion and intellectual force. Angels, said Pantalaimon, now a cricket on Lyra's shoulder. Maybe specters, Lyra said. No, 
that he said this was something angely, he insisted. Bet that's angels. <clears throat> I notice the verb that's used of the sunlight there, dusted, surely significant. Um, and Pan's knowledge of languages here comes out again, um, or his guess, his shrewd guess about them. It's like when he remembered about the meter part of the word alethiometer, when they first wondered about what that might mean. At the door, Lyra's fear is all that holds her back, and Pan's anxiety expressing it, and she heeds it this time, remembering what happened with the skulls in the crypt. So instead of going through this doorway, she makes her way through the window back to Will's world. There's more memories of her old Oxford here. She enjoyed arguing with the porter the day before, but having the trump card of knowing Dr. Malone takes some of the fun out of it. She pities him as he calls, and for having not a proper lodge but a counter as if it were a shop. That aristocratic bent of hers comes through, and her cliched condescension towards the porter here makes this one of Lyra's most unlikable moments in the whole series for me. How she's a demure, good little girl. A bit of symbol interpretation ensues, wherein Lyra is badly off her game. How are washrooms marked in her world? Dr. Malone's agitation, her questions, and that these police somehow know about Lyra visiting, she doesn't take as seriously as she did Pan's worries about the tower. She doesn't wonder how they knew she was there, uh, and how they knew that but not her name. Instead, she is supremely sure of herself. I can lie. That's easy. And Dr. Malone falls into line, offering a satisfactory enough lie of her own about what they're doing in the washroom, but unable to hide Lyra if she doesn't think it's necessary. Sergeant Clifford's false smile, her nerve at treating the lab as if it were her own, irk Lyra rather than putting her on her guard. It's only when she's across from the other man, effectively trapped in the room, that she begins having second thoughts. The full consequence of what she's about to do still doesn't hit her, but she has a twinge of regret that she knows what the alethiometer meant for her to be doing, and it was not this. So, it's not so much what she is doing as what she's not doing as a result that leads to this misgiving of hers. The reader is put on alert by the detail of the man's white eyebrows. Neither of them is a scholar, indeed. And Inspector Walters, if that is his real name, asks his questions, nothing difficult, and yet it's far from her talk with the kids that morning. Pan, still a cricket, has to be thought to, to keep still. It's one of the most overt bits of telepathy that we've seen so far. The question that this inspector asks is the same as the one that the children first asked, and yet because of his adult power of concentrated attention, when he asks where Lyra's from, it's much more dangerous, she knows. Now, careful as she's trying to be, 
she gives what might actually be the worst possible answer, because the only other place she knows the name of in this world is Will's hometown, Winchester. And just as he'd worried, Lyra's bruises do come in for comment now. And school, the glory of her existence has been that she has never had to go to one. But where she goes to school is his next question, and shouldn't he be there now? And suddenly she feels uneasy when she'd always been so adept at lying before. There are clearly a number of reasons for this, but I can't help seeing that the school question should come up as being a particularly salient one on which she should begin to founder, precisely because she thinks she's finding her way. She came to see Dr. Malone, where she's staying. Well, she adapts Will's lie to, that he told the motorists about not remembering the address. She gets to talking about her father, Lord Asriel, who never appears and isn't named, of course, but nevertheless he's present here. Her father's a physicist, and then she begins to lie more easily, becomes more fluently. But her very next words betray her own strangeness as she calls the computer, oh yes, that engine with the screen. <laughs> Some things are universal, of course. The question about what she wants to be when she grows up gets the blank stare it deserves, we're told, sententiously by the narrator. But her questioners are not disconcerted. They just keep her talking. Her father's doing the same kind of work, yes, and that's true up to a point, after all investigating what's called in this world dark matter, and her next prevarication, that he does some things better, is much like what she said about the relative merits of her and Will's worlds after they'd come out of the movie theater. With her mind on how to spin out the dark matter line of questioning, she's unprepared for the real object of their questioning all along to suddenly surface. To the question about Will, she responds automatically and naturally, and maybe even before the reader realizes what's going on, she knows she's made a horrible mistake. Not so much what she answered, which isn't any truer than anything else she said, but simply her own half-distracted attention, leading her to respond so naturally to a question about someone she's pretending not to know. That is the issue here. The very skill that she has at lying leads her into this trouble and her confidence in it. Luckily, Dr. Malone responds even faster than the officers, or whatever they are. She gets in their way, trips one of them, fouls up the other, and gives Lyra time to run away. Uh, Pan, as a crow, the author's friend, gets her away from a couple of scientists, maybe some shades of Bolvanger here, and she makes it downstairs, where she races past the porter before he can navigate his cumbersome desk flap. Lyra tries to push the revolving door the wrong way, and the porter bumbles into the way of the pale-haired man, and this all lends a kind of bizarre comedy to the chase. But the narrator reminds us that for Lyra it's no joke. She cuts across roads. Oh, he was frightening. She runs back. Uh, and Pan 
calling the way to her uh, from his flying vantage. She, he's the one who gives her the idea to double back and lose the pale-haired man. And specifically, she runs past the Banbury Road, dodging cars again, uh, and on to Norham Gardens. That's where she goes to ground in a privet hedge. The one good thing being Dr. Malone's help. Now she knows she can trust her, that, that she didn't betray them, but it's on their side. And as they'd resolved, she and Pan at the Northern Lights, they should have been more careful. They should not have come. Pan tells her to look out once more, but by then the car with its passenger, she recognizes, is already there. And despite Pan's nip, she gets in. There's no suggestion that she even suspects that Sir Charles might have been in cahoots with the police, or whoever they were. They drive up Summertown. Maybe its name was the inspiration for Chittagatsu's weather, or at least for the uh, general direction of where the windows could be found. And she revels in the smooth and soft and powerful car, though the smell of the old man's cologne was strong in the enclosed space. Um, and in that string of adjectives, smooth and soft and powerful, it even parallels the description of the angel decorations on the tower doorway, which expressed power and compassion and intellectual force. So it's rather ambiguous all around. Um, Meanwhile, she feels that she's finally safe. And that was the impossible dream of wills on finding the world of Chittagatsi. It carries for Lyra the added element of, of a competition that she's won, that deadly earnest race. She gives a hiccup of triumph. But the old man is continuing their conversation from the museum the day before which even then she wasn't particularly interested in, telling her about some anthropologist friend who found more of the skulls that she was looking at. Neanderthal, you know. And she feigns interest, though she had no idea what he was talking about. She does tune in when he asks her about her friend. And then she uses the sort of evasive pronouns that Lee Scoresby appealed to, with the scrailing. Oh, she's very well. Lyra reverts to her lie about a physicist, but this time she knows she's not quite in control, since saying she uh, now has actually implicated Mary Malone rather closely. In this world, it was harder to tell lies than she thought. And something else was nagging at her. This old man was familiar in some long-lost way, and she just couldn't place it. Hmm. The old man is a reader, at least in a limited sense, because he saw something about dark matter in the Times that morning. He asks if she's going in for physics, 
that same patronizing question. Um, she sort of politely answers it this time. And his questioning leads up not to the acquisition of information, but to something more concrete that he stands to gain by distracting and keeping Lyra off her balance. As she has to climb past him awkwardly, trying to avoid touching him, nice as he was, and then he passes her the rucksack. So whatever feeling she'd had about the pale-haired man that she'd wanted to read the alethiometer about, and so maybe at one stage he was going to be a recurring villain or something like the big bad albino of the Sally Lockhart books. The, the mention of the alethiometer itself at this little cliffhanger in the midst of the chapter is, is what becomes most salient here. We cut to Will, who, too, is reading again, reading the clear handwriting on the flimsy sheets, um, imagining who the writer was. And, and he makes reference to himself. That's the part in particular he seems interested in. The mention of the writer, of course, is a self-conscious uh, reference on Pullman's part, and doubly so because he is both writer and fatherless. And as if coming alive off the page we are reading, then arriving while Will is reading are Pan and Lyra sobbing with rage. That rage is repeatedly linked with murderous intent towards its object, and connected, too, with a particular agent who is to be responsible for that murder. She says, Kill him, kill him, I want him dead. I wish Yorick was here. Oh, Will, I done wrong. I'm so sorry. Behind the rage, then, a terrible guilt, surely bound up with Lyra's earlier betrayal of Roger, which foreshadowed uh, her Im imagined betrayal of, of Yorick before he ultimately prevailed in his fight against Yofor. And as we'll see, that uh, betrayal of Roger ultimately prefigures a still greater, if also temporary, betrayal on the shores of the world of the dead. In short, I've done such wrong things this morning. Oh, I... She calls the old man a low thief, stinky old man, who before had seemed to be her rescuer. He stole the alethiometer. He remains only a proxy for her bitterness towards herself, though, for having done such wrong things. And Will, observing this, continues the modulation between literary performance and realism. He reflects that hearts really did break. Uh, but when her wailing and pants howling caused the kids down the beach to shade their eyes to look over, 
he has to intervene. When she says, I promised, it has immediate reference to her promise not to give him away, of course, but there are also a uh, additional reference here to her promise to the master to keep the alethiometer secret, and her promise to herself and Pantalaimon to be more careful after Roger's death. None of this is articulated, but from Pan's form as a young, clumsy dog, Will understands there's something she's too ashamed to tell him. Her demon tells the story from here, that they asked a lot of questions and tricked them. That is, they used Lyra's strengths against her. They gave it away that they knew Will. And at this he begins flickering in agitation through different shapes. But that mistake is not terribly grave, since the man whose, will, whose description Will recognizes didn't see them come through the window. But Lyra's face is rigid like a Greek mask, another embodiment of literary convention, as she relates how the old man had seen her using the Elysiometer, how he must have taken it. There's still no suggestion that these events with the police and the old man could be connected, so why should she feel particularly guilty about either mischance? It's because the Elysiometer told her to stop looking for dust and to help him find his father. But she'd done what she wanted. And as she says it, Will knows it's true. She could have helped him, and now she can't. And Will's anger here, like Lyra's anger, must have a self-reflexive component. After all, she'd offered him, basically, to tell him more about his father the day before, when she was demonstrating her reading of the instrument. But he cut her off then, and now, similarly, he breaks away from her supplicating touch and will not forgive her when she says she's sorry. But she thinks then, that there's a way to make it all right. And a light comes in her eyes. Yet another quite literal living example of a literary trope. The answer is in a piece of writing. The perfectly conventional business card the old man gave her the day before with his address on it. This address gives them the means to go and get it back as far as she's concerned. Will reads it differently. He's a sir. A knight. Whereas Will is a fugitive. And he calls Lyra's idea to go and steal it. And calls her stupid. It's about the meanest thing he does in the whole series. After all, she can only see it in the light of her own and not insignificant experience. She compares him unfavorably now to York. But then immediately recognizes the bare boy in Will. She quailed, just as she would have quailed if the bear had been looking at her that way. There's something akin in the two of them. To Will's litany of burglar alarms, locks, and lights, her response is simple. I couldn't know that. The admission is not normal with her, but just as much as not going 
in the doorway of the Torah de Angeli earlier, this admission is an indication of her growing wisdom. Will spells out his own fears with reference to his own experience. He says, think of, of hiding something in, in a whole house, just as the men at Will's house had many opportunities to search and still never found it. And Sir Charles's house is bound to be much bigger with more places to hide. Defeated, Lyra hangs her head. But even in submitting to the necessity, she points the way forward, asking, what are we going to do? And Will is struck by that pronoun, we. He was bound to her now, whether he liked it or not. Her trust in him carries a responsibility to her on his part, even if, perhaps especially, now that she has betrayed his trust and owned up to it. He agrees that they better just go there. Setting aside Mary Malone's help for now, as he assumes that she's bound to believe a sir rather than the two children, he's prudent as ever. He hides the letters. His own most precious possession hides him under the mattress. And Lyra, meanwhile, is already recovering her cheer. We're going to get it back all right, she says. I can feel it. Now Will continues the silent treatment as they walk to Headington. And it was much harder for Lyra now than it had been even in the Arctic on the way to Bolvanger, for then she'd had the Egyptians and Yorick Bernison with her. And even if the tundra was full of danger, you knew the danger when you saw it. Here, in the city that was both hers and not hers, danger could look friendly, and treachery smiled and smelled sweet. And even if they weren't going to kill her or part her from Pantalaimon, they had robbed her of her only guide. Without the alethiometer, she was just a little girl, lost. A description should probably recall Mrs. Coulter, of all people. And if she'd made that connection, she might have further realized who it is and where it's from that she knows Sir Charles. Another strongly implied allusion comes in the phrase, uh, little girl lost. That's Blake's poem again from the Songs of Experience. The whole theme of guidance, the nature of the alethiometer's guidance, of course, comes to the fore chiefly once its absence is felt, and it will remain pronounced through the rest of the series. The house, the color of honey with its Virginia creeper, seems to associate Sir Charles's wealth and power his upper-class assumptions and privilege with colonialism. His theft of the alethiometer is a kind of rape, much like the extraction of resources from colonies to pile up private luxuries. The echoes of the specter orphan's complaint about the guildman's greed are picked up here in the memory that comes back to Will. It makes him grit his teeth. How, when he was young, they went to a house not unlike this 
he and his mother, and some people made his mother cry. Lyra, once again, is sensible enough not to ask him why he's angry. Though nobly born herself, she's always conscious of the prerogatives of that, but she's clearly distinguished from the sort of greed and snobbishness that's represented in Sir Charles and in the old lady at the party. Her particular knowledge actually comes in handy in a small way here, as she knows how to use the old-fashioned bell pull. They're like in her world, and that's another little clue, but a much bigger one is about to come. Now, Will's jaw jutting is a recurring detail, clearly connoting the strength of Will, but there's also a class connotation involved there that's crystallized in the old word prognathus, which used to be wielded with racial, biological determinist, and phrenological overtones. As we see, Will is much more than just stubborn. He's planning their heist, beginning with the front door, which he knows no sensible burglar would go through anyway. But he notices that it's got a, an alarm displayed, and there's spotlights at each corner of the house. Again, we get that word disconcerting, now describing Sir Charles's calmness. He is not ashamed. And this sharply distinguishes him as an adult from them as adolescents. And when he uses her real name, it's Will's turn to curse himself for forgetting. Though to, to her credit, Lyra never reproaches him with it. He falls back on the by now transparent lie of their siblinghood. But for some reason, Sir Charles invites them in. The hall, dim, smelling of beeswax and flowers with its porcelain figures, is like a combination of the interior that Lyra glimpsed of the Tory and the decorations back at Mrs. Coulter's flat. In the study, the blend of courtesy and guardedness is heightened by the comfortable yet unsettling surroundings, this jumble of books, pictures, trophies, antiques, all of dubious provenance and right. It's clear, though, why he wanted the alisiometer. Unmoved by either Lyra's accusation or Will's more modest suggestion that she might have left it in the car, Sir Charles flourishes the golden splendor of the alisiometer, only to lock it in the glass cabinet and pocket the key close enough to touch, yet impossible to access. He ratchets up the cruelty here with his bald-faced lies, that the alisiometer is not Lyra's, and that he's doing this, he doesn't say it, but his face does, doing this all for her own good, much like the attitude assumed by Mrs. Coulter in her tete-a-tete with Lyra and Bolvanger. When Will protests, Sir Charles stands on the letter of the law. They have to prove that it's theirs. He doesn't have to prove anything because his possession of the instrument means people will assume it to be his, let alone the fact that he, like Pullman, by the way, is a sir. 
uh, CBE. Now, twisting their words, he calls Lyra dishonest because she gave him a false name, which presumably he knew all along was fake. Um, he says they'll have no hope of convincing anyone, or by the time they do, he'll have, uh, well, maybe this comes a bit later, never mind. Uh, he, he threatens to call the police, and even with Pan a snarling wildcat, he, he hardly flinches, and, he, and of course he doesn't call anyone. The worst uh, insult Lyra can come up with is that he is worse than her mother. He should die, but mainly because he's not worth leaving alive. And then her words finally run out. And she spits full in his face. Like the cat. Now, Will, meanwhile, looks around, memorizing everything he can. This is like what Ruta Scotti did when she went through the invisible boundary, high, high in the air with the angels. More insult, calls her a filthy brat. Tears are shaken out by her anger. And the conflict is de-escalated after that outburst. Once more, they're left puzzled. What was he playing at? And then the slight fissure appears in Sir Charles's self-control. It's so minor, Will thought he imagined it. This emerald head of a snake peeking out past his snowy shirt cuff. Um, now, Will's shock is apparently not noticed. Uh, he manages to see this without being seen. There's really no choice, um, patently wishful thinking uh, on Sir Charles's part. But he says, and he calls himself a collector. Um, this indicates, I think, that our supplementary reading for this chapter should probably be Pullman's short story, The Collectors, which was originally released in such a way as to ensure that its only readers, or rather listeners, would be devoted collectors themselves. Um, so I've got a link to that in the description for this episode. Now, like the white Mercedes slash uh, butterfly tattoo and like the Sally Lockhart books, I don't think and I can't imagine that there's much scholarship yet out there about this short story, The Collectors. But there is, of course, a lot of interesting stuff in there about these favorite themes of Pullman's about whether people have a choice um, about art and beauty and storytelling um, and, of course, uh, about the mysterious process by which uh, the truth might be arrived at in these matters. Uh, I think uh, it's kind of interesting here, too, that Sir Charles threatens to apply writing in a tyrannical way, that he can forge documents, so he doesn't admit to forging them. Uh, he can get documents that will prove his claim to the Elysiometer.
he says, there is something he wants even more. And so he proposes a trade. In the same moment, he seems to comprehend a little for the first time what it is he's offering to trade away. The alethiometer, those emblems, the word truth uh, as the meaning for alethia. But his mind has been long made up, it seems. He knows they know about a doorway to another world, a world with no grown-ups in it. And he knows that there's a man there who has made um, that, that window, uh, that he's got a knife that he's hiding. If he's where he thinks he is, he's very afraid with good reason. Uh, in this old stone tower with angels around the doorway. Once more, transparently false, he says that he's a man of his word. And with that, the chapter ends. Though the action from it into the next is perfectly continuous um, and will build over the next couple of chapters, actually, to some major turning points in the series, as we'll see. So thanks again for listening.